everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor, Amos Grunendijk. Hi, everybody. I mean, I got off easy. When you get introduced by your wife, you never know what the introduction is going to look like. Uh, But I want to be serious here just for a minute. Last week, we had a block party, and I just want to say to the members, to the people who call this church their family, I'm really proud of you. Uh, I couldn't have gone better. I told Allison uh, last Monday, I'm going to go up onto the stage and do backflips. Because, uh, because you guys went out and you invited your friends and your neighbors to come and experience something that was fun, but also invited them to church. I heard of a three-year-old who was at her brother's soccer game going around with invites, inviting every single person that she found. In fact, one lady she walked up to and she said, no, I'm not interested. I don't want one. She says, no, I don't under- you don't understand. There's going to be moon bounces there. <laughs> And there were, there were moon bounces. I heard of another, I heard of another mom uh, who, whose kids had actually pulled off all the tops of all the flowers on one of her neighbor's yards. And so there had been some things that had gone on between the two of them, but the mom goes over with an invitation to the block party, and this person is blown away because of the invitation. Like, why would someone who I fought with invite me to a party? That shows the relentless love and pursuit of God to people that we know. And there were other people who were invited to church and to the block party after. And when they asked, do I have to go to church? And we were able to say, no, you don't have to come to church. The block party will probably start about 1130. Just come to that. The looks on their faces said, wow, I always expect that love comes with strings attached. It's great, and and a lot of people did come to just the block party and not to church. So just hear me when I say this. There were people in church experiencing the peace of God, like actual people that I've heard from who typically wouldn't have been in church last week. So good job. Now here's the reality, right? There were people who you invited who didn't come, and I don't want you to feel any shame about that. Because what we're trying to do is show that God is someone who pursues people. And so as people who want to be more like God, we want to be pursuers of people. But you can't control how they're going to respond. Jesus had a ton of people reject not just his invitation, but reject him in person all the time. Like oftentimes he would heal a group of people and nine out of ten would walk away with one to respond. So if Jesus' batting average is about 100, like, it's okay if no one you invited came, truly. And if you're here because of an invitation, I don't want you to feel weird about what I'm saying now, because, again, we believe that God is someone that pursues, and so if you were invited, we're just trying to show you what God is like. Got it? So last week, uh, we were talking on a new series called Messy, and we're going to continue with that this week, because we are a church full of of messy people. My father-in-law tells me every couple of months, he said, if you ever, if you ever, you have father-in-laws who tell you the same thing every couple of months. Anyway, he he says, if you ever find a perfect church, don't go there because you're going to mess them up. 
right? The reality is, is that we're all bringing stuff along with us to make any group of people that we're interacting with messy. And so in this series, we've been tracking through a book or a letter rather called 1 Corinthians, which was written by the Apostle Paul to a church that was a real mess. It was one of the most exciting, dynamic, gifted, powerful churches to be in in the first century, and yet they had some of the most deep-rooted conflicts and problems. And last week, we talked a little bit about how the Bible calls us toward conflict resolution. And something that stuck with you, I know, was this turtle skunk thing. So I basically said that there's essentially two different types of conflict styles. There are turtles who tend to retreat, and if they are aggressive, that kind of aggressive starts with a P, right? Passive aggressive. They'll pull into their shell. And skunks who, when they're hurt or offended, will spray over everybody, creating this wake of relational wreckage. And I said that usually turtles marry skunks, but that's not always the case. But there was a lot of elbowing going on last week. And I want to push in, push in just a little bit deeper to that, into that because I feel like uh, I didn't talk enough about the healthy alternative. And the reality is, is that I'm not, if you're a turtle, you don't need to become, in, become a skunk. And if you're a skunk, you don't need to become a turtle. And I'm not saying that skunks are better at conflict than turtles, or turtles are better at conflict than skunks, but each one has an unhealthy move that they can make when they're hurt. So an unhealthy turtle withdraws and won't address the issues. And a skunk will spray over everyone that they can find. Okay, so if you're a skunk, the first step is to realize that you're a skunk, skunk and realize uh, your tendency to spray. So a healthy skunk is going to tone it down, be gentle. You're allowed to have emotions in conflict, but you're not allowed to be mean and a jerk and spray over everybody and call people names and belittle other people, right? So you need to be thinking, I need to be more gentle. A skunk can be a really great animal to have as a pet as long as it doesn't raise its tail and spray, right? It, like, it, you can be married to a skunk and it can go well, but there's got to be some... some parameter set. Likewise, the turtle. If you know that you're a turtle, you know that you need to be a little more proactive in going to someone and resolving their conflict, right? Like, it's not a matter of turtles stop being turtles and skunks stop being skunks. It's moving toward health, moving toward honest, open uh, conversations about how you've been hurt or maybe how you've hurt others that are, you know, in the context of humility and love and committing uh, to each other so that that turns into, uh, that conflict turns into something that draws you closer rather than splits you apart, okay? So this week, we're going to be looking at conflict again. We once again have people dividing over an issue. And like most things, the thing isn't the thing. In fact, it's the thing under the thing that's the thing. This is true of most things. Track with that. I'm going to put this up on print, and this should clarify. The thing isn't the thing. It's the thing underneath the thing that's the thing. In this case, it's the thing underneath the thing underneath the thing that's the thing. It's true about most things. That's clear, right? Okay, let's, let's show this a little differently in graph form. So there's an issue, 
right? In this case, the issue that the Corinthian church is dealing with is how do we engage with the culture? How do we follow Jesus and engage with culture? Or should we engage with culture? But underneath that issue, there are experiences, assumption, and values that each side is bringing to the issue. And underneath that, there's insecurity, heart issues, and matters of identity that can bubble up and bubble up and bubble up and turn the issue into something way different than the issue. And I think this is true in this division or this conflict that they're having in the Corinthian church that we're going to read about. But man, is this true in marriages where you might be fighting about closed cupboards or unwashed dishes or socks on the floor, but really, or parenting styles, but really there's values and experiences and assumptions that are coming into that fight. And below that, there's insecurity sometimes. It's true when we're talking about politics, potentially, right? Anything, put anything on the map, I think that there are levels, okay? And so with that, let's turn to what's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, if you want to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 8, you can. I'm going to be reading from the message version because, man, this is a tough passage. And there's a lot of work to do from the context to applying it to our day. But even in the way that Paul speaks in the original language, the Greek, it's just very hard to wade through. And so what the message is going to do is it's going to take out about 30 minutes of me trying to explain what the English means. So there should be much rejoicing over that. So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. The question keeps coming up regarding meat that has been offered up to an idol. Should you attend meals where such meat is served or not? We sometimes tend to think we know all we need to know to answer these kinds of questions, but sometimes our humble hearts can help us more than our proud minds. We never really know enough until we recognize that God alone knows it all. So there's the thing. Should you go to meals where there is meat offered up to idols? And there's the thing below the thing. We sometimes tend to think we know all we need to know to answer these kind of questions, but sometimes our humble hearts can help us more than our proud minds, right? So what's the big deal? If you've been raised in the church, you've maybe heard about this passage and thought, I have no idea what that means, and I don't think it applies to our lives here in 21st century America. But let me explain a little bit about what's going on with that meat sacrifice to idols thing. There's a picture that's going to be going up, and this is from Pompeii, very well-preserved a restaurant. Actually, this is the bar in a restaurant. And what would happen in almost every single restaurant in the Roman world is before the meat was served to patrons, it would be sacrificed or offered up to an idol, to one of their gods. So you can't see it super well, but there's a fresca. There's like a painting over on the back wall. On that fresca is a picture to Mercury. Uh, no, not Mercury. Eh, maybe Mercury. I can't remember now. Uh, certainly Bacchus is up there. He's the god of wine. And before it was served, kind of like if a Christian were to pray before a meal or if your Jewish something happens to turn the food into kosher food, they would do that to their gods. And so the question is, can we go out to restaurants? That's the question that some of the early Christians are asking. And some Christians are falling on one side of the debate and other Christians are falling on the other side of the debate. Is it safe to engage with the culture 
if it's not perfectly pure, clean, Christianized, sanitized? Can we go to restaurants? It's as simple as that. So let's keep reading. Uh, This will be chapter 8, verse 4. Some people say, quite rightly, that idols have no existence, that there's nothing to them, that there is no God other than our one God, that no matter how many of these so-called gods are named and worshipped, they still don't add up to anything but a tall story. In other words, like, they're fairy tales. They say again, quite rightly, that there is only one God, the Father, that everything comes from Him, and that He wants us to live for Him. Also, they say that there is only one Master, Jesus the Messiah, and that everything is for His sake, including us. Yes, it's true. So there's point one and point two, and here's the conclusion. In strict logic, then, nothing happened to the meat when it was offered up to an idol. It's just like any other meat. I know that, and you know that, but knowing isn't everything. If it becomes everything, some people end up as know-it-alls who treat others as know-nothings. Real knowledge isn't that insensitive. So where does Paul come out on this issue? Is it okay to go to restaurants? Is there like a moral violation if you go out to a restaurant where meat has been sacrificed? Is there a moral violation if you watch Netflix and they say a bad word? Or or if you listen to music and it's not totally, doesn't have the Christian label on it? You see what I'm saying here? Where does Paul come out on this issue? Well, there's a couple of phrases there that point us in the direction that he's going. So let's go to the next slide, please. There it is. Two phrases. Everything comes from God and everything is for his sake. Did you catch that when I was reading it? There's another uh, Old Testament passage in the Psalms that said, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, or everything in it. What Paul is saying here is Netflix, Starbucks, Victory Brewing Company, the music, the, the books, the everything is not just neutral. It's actually good because God created the world. He created the people he put in it, and he created those people with creative abilities to fill up the world with culture and art and music. And so even though sin, evil, can get in and twist the good, at baseline there's something good at the bottom of each of these things. That Netflix show that gets pretty dark sometimes is showing us what's going on in the human heart. If you're under 18, your parents still get to decide because they pay the rent what you watch on Netflix, okay? (laughs) There's a couple of you in there. They never like it when I say that. But, of course, there are limits. And let me just say this, right? Because there's a point where engaging in the culture can actually start to mess you up on the inside. My wife and I, I'm not going to tell you which show, but a show on Netflix, we, it, it was dark. It was violent. There, was, there were things in it, but it also, like, it was artistic in the sense that it helped you understand. It put uh, dialogue and characters to, like, the human existence. And we watched season one, and we watched season two, and we watched season three. This last season, we walked away in the middle of it because it was so dark that it was essentially poisoning. We realized it was making us feel dirty afterwards and making us think about other people in not grace-filled ways, but in suspicious ways. Does that make sense? So there's a limit, I think, to this, and there's discernment that needs to happen. There's, you know, guidance. Ask your friends. Ask God. Figure out what it's doing inside of you, okay? So, let's keep going. Uh, I think we're in verse 10 now, 7, 8. I don't know what that is. 
verse 7. We need to be sensitive to the fact that we're not all at the same level of understanding in this. Some of you have spent your entire lives eating idol meat and are sure that there's something bad in the meat that then becomes something bad inside of you. And imagination and conscience shaped under those conditions isn't going to change overnight. Okay, so now Paul is saying, yes, it's true you can engage with culture. Yes, it's true that you don't have to, if you become a Christian, throw out all your rock music. And if you did that, it's probably because someone either told you to or, here's the other potential reason that Paul is bringing up here, maybe growing up you didn't just listen to rock music. Maybe growing up you lived a rock style, rock star lifestyle. So maybe it was you listened to the music, you played the music, you did the drugs, you had the sex, all these things, and when you listen to the music, it kind of brings you back to that lifestyle. It's like a trigger, okay? Maybe you have a history of alcohol abuse, and while it's okay for people to drink, it's not okay for you to drink. And so what Paul is saying to the rest of the group, like, be aware of other people's weakness, because maybe they grew up with a rock and roll lifestyle. You know the truth, you are right, but maybe you need to make some space for those around you who are still growing up in the grace of God. I'll explain what I mean in a minute. We're going to jump down to verse 11. It never hurts to go shorter, right? Christ gave up his life for that person, that person I was just talking about, who grew up, it's just an example, with the rock star lifestyle. Christ gave up his life for that person. Wouldn't you at least be willing to give up going to dinner for him? Because as you say, it doesn't really make any difference. But it does make a difference if you hurt your friend terribly, risking his ruin. When you hurt your friend, you hurt Jesus. A free meal here and there isn't worth it at all isn't worth it at the cost of even one of these weak ones. So never go to these idol-tainted meals if there's any chance it will trip you up, trip up one of your brothers or sisters. Okay, I want to key in on exactly what's going on in these two groups of people. It gets a little messy here, uh, but you have these, this one group called the weak ones, and in the original Greek, the language that this was written first, it's actually the weak in conscience. And Paul will bring up the weak in different letters, and sometimes it's the weak in faith, sometimes it's the weak in conscience. And on the other side, like there's these ditches that you can fall into, there's the strong, but in this case, the strong have fallen into the ditch of being know-it-alls in the, the language of the message here. Now, what's interesting about this phrase, weak in conscience, is today when we say you have a weak conscience, what do we mean? We mean that you can do things that are bad and not feel bad and not feel guilty. Oddly enough, Paul is using the term weak in conscience as exactly the opposite here. He's saying these people are getting like sort of close to maybe doing something bad and they feel really, really dirty inside. They feel polluted. They feel like they've done something that's now jeopardized their relationship and their standing with God. And Paul is saying it's because their conscience 
is weak. It's because they have a weak conscience. These weak and conscience people, they, they hate gray areas, right? They, they need it to be black and white. They're always analyzing everything that they do and everything that everybody else does, and they're trying to decide, is that Christian or not Christian? Is that good or is that bad? And because they have that mindset, what will often happen is that they will set up these protective shields around them to make sure that they don't get anywhere close to sin or doing something wrong. And then they'll, they'll build up a wall and say, no, actually, that's, that's wrong if you even cross the wall. So what happens here is, there is a, there's a target, right? The Bible says no other gods. The Bible says that. And they're trying to live that out in their culture. But what they've done is they've created this wall outside of what God says and said, no, no it's wrong if you eat food that's sacrificed to idols. It's wrong if you go to a restaurant that's not, you know, a Christian restaurant, okay? And, and Christians do this in different areas as well. So one, for instance, this is a dangerous one to bring up, but in my reading, in my interpretation, the Bible says that it is wrong to live a lifestyle of drunkenness. But what some Christians have said is, you know, you should never get drunk. Okay, I can respect that interpretation. And an even wider wall, you should never drink, period. Which is super problematic if you actually read the Bible and see who is drinking. <laughs> but anyway, it's because, right, they don't want to get close to the thing that, that is wrong. They don't want to be polluted, tainted, because, because their conscience is weak. This is, a, this is a funny one. So we skipped over a bunch of chapters in 1 Corinthians, uh, because like chapter 5, 6, and 7, it's all about sex. And if you were here back in February, we did a series called Sex Gods, so we covered that, and I didn't think you probably wanted another four weeks on the topic. But, so what Christians have done, I'm serious about this, because the Bible says don't have sex outside of marriage. They've drew this circle and said don't dance, because dancing can lead to sex, right? And so you can see how, if you're in this protective mode, you can turn things into sin that God never said were wrong. And it's not, in my opinion, hurting anyone. So what's, what's down at the deepest level? We've been talking right about the values, sort of the experiences, where they're coming from, the rock style life music. At the root of this, the reason their conscience is weak is because their conscience is not oriented to the grace of God. A weak conscience is a conscience that is not fully oriented to the grace of God. What do I mean by that? The grace of God is this powerful, powerful thing. The grace of God gets translated into this fact that Jesus died for you and lived for you and you are accepted, loved, embraced. Your value comes from that fact. It's free, only needing to be received by you. You don't earn the grace of God. You can't wiggle your way into the grace of God. You can only receive the grace of God. So even though you get somewhere close, even when you do sin, it's not as if God has decided to cut off relationship with you. You are not like eternally tainted by that because of this doctrine that a lot of Christians have believed down the centuries called justification by faith, not by works by faith, by trusting that God is good, that He died for you, and you've given your life to Him. You've received that. That 
is what makes you clean, not whether or not you go to restaurants, not whether or not you eat meat sacrificed to idols, not whether or not you watch Netflix. You are justified by faith because we serve this loving, gracious God. Now you might be thinking, if you're one of the strong ones, you're like, all right, well, I've got it figured out. I can live however I want because I understand the grace of God, right? Well, Paul actually is harder on you because of your maturity, because of your strong conscience. That's actually who becomes the primary target here. And so the strong ones, right, they love ambiguity, they're open-minded, but you can fall into that ditch of believing that you feel superior, and so you can become arrogant, right? And you get into this mindset that because you're more mature, you're better, because you understand better the grace of God, that you stand above like you are worth more than people who don't. You become very critical of people who won't read Harry Potter or who won't go to victory with you or who won't watch the shows that you watch on Netflix, right? And you see how your strength has actually turned into weakness. And I believe at the root, it's the same problem. Your conscience, your heart has not been fully oriented to the grace of God. Because you are loved and you are valued purely because of the grace of God, not because of your maturity. Paul is not saying weak ones worse, strong ones better. He's saying we are in a family all accepted for the same reason, and it's not because of us, it's because of Jesus and his life and his death. And at the identity level, what happens, I think, especially to those who are strong, but also to ones that are weak, is that you say, right, I'm valuable because I'm more knowledgeable. I'm valuable because I'm more mature. Let's take this down a notch. I'm valuable because I'm a professional. And so that means that you judge people who are not a professional to be less than. I'm valuable. I'm superior because I am open-minded. Ironically, that means you're not valuing, you're devaluing, you're criticizing, you're judging those who are less open-minded than you, as judged by yourself. I'm valuable, I'm worthy, I'm better because I am more moral than the person who is less moral. The normal way we get any sense of being special or being good is by comparison. Why do we love it so much when we see a celebrity fall? Why do we, this is going to date me a little bit, but the, we loved Britney Spears. And then all of a sudden, she was exposed for this weakness or that weakness. And I mean, you haven't seen a nice thing written about Britney Spears in a decade. Why do we love to see the celebrities fall? Well, it's because they've achieved something, right? And we feel like they're better than, that, better than us. And then when we see that they've messed up, we can once again feel superior to them, right? We, we love them, and then we chew them up and spit them out. We can do that in our places of work. We can do that with our families. I remember when I was, I mean, the stuff runs deep in elementary school. I remember there, there's this one kid, and he picked on me a little bit, but I was 
pretty big. <laughs> so nobody really picked on me too much, but I was always in my mind constructing these competitions with this other kid. Like, I bet I could work harder than him. Because, right, in my family, the thing that made you valuable was how hard you worked. Not your education, not your intelligence. It was how hard you worked. So I was always in my mind coming up with these ways to prove to myself that I was a harder worker than him. And that made me feel superior to him. And if your life is based on these kinds of comparisons, your heart will turn cold. Because you're always trying to climb that ladder as you push other people down. And what Paul is talking here is, is polar opposite to that. Paul is talking about unity, about valuing one another, which can only come from this baseline understanding that we are accepted, that we are valued, that we are loved because of the grace of God. This is radical. This is a totally different way of being to say I am important not because of what I do, not because of how smart I am, not because of the friends that I have, but because of the grace of God that frees you to love people just as God loved us. It says here, uh, Christ gave up his life for that person. Christ gave up his life for us so we can give up the things that we use to judge others to make space, to enter into dialogue, to enter into relationship. And to stand, because I've said this before, but those things that you're placing your identity in, your work, your looks, your phone, those things will not remain. They will crumble, and if you're standing on them, you will crumble with them. This has happened to me several times in my life. So what I want you to do right now is if you still have those Connect cards, uh, and you pull out your bulletin, and you, you turn them over, you'll see that there's a spot there that says take away. And what I want you to do, just for a minute, you don't have to participate, and if you want to just fill out the Connect card, you know, name and address, that's fine too. I want you to think about where you're placing your value other than God. And I want you to think about, to uncover that, where you go in your mind in comparison. Like when you start comparing yourself to other people, what arena is that? Where does that happen? And so the worship team's coming up. They're going to play just a few minutes. I want you to write down those places in your life where you're putting your identity, where you're finding your superiority. It could be moral, it could be professional, it could be intellectual. Because, man, when people, when people come after me at, and make me feel dumb, that's when my claws come out. So where do, you, where do your claws come out? Reflect on that, pray a bit, or just sit in God's presence for a minute. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.